Turn to Mark chapter 9, verse 30. Yeshua again predicts his death. Leaving that region, they traveled through Galilee. Yeshua didn't want anyone to know he was there, for he wanted to spend more time with his disciples and teach them. He said to them, the Son of Man is going to be betrayed into the hands of his enemies. He will be killed. But three days later, he will rise from the dead. They didn't understand what he was saying, however. And they were afraid to ask him what he meant. So what's happening? Yeshua was on a mission, the greatest rescue mission ever undertaken. Yeshua knew that the end of his mission was near, and because of that, he wanted to spend less time with the crowds and more time with his disciples, these special men, getting them ready to take over his mission. For the third time that's recorded in this book so far, Mark records that Yeshua told his disciples that he would be killed and rise from the dead. He will tell them this once again in the following chapter. However, in spite of his clear and repeated statements about his death followed by his resurrection, they didn't understand what he was saying. Their limited understanding of the mission of the Messiah, that Messiah would be a conquering hero, saving Israel from Roman oppression, that prevented them from understanding the full truth about the Messiah and his mission, that he would come not once, but he would come twice. The first time to suffer and die to make atonement, to reconcile us to God, to overcome Satan and the other fallen angels, to overcome sin and death. Overcoming those things were our greatest needs, not overcoming Roman oppression. Then Messiah would die, he would rise from the dead, he would return to heaven, and from there, he would return to earth to defeat all of God's enemies and reign over Israel and the nations from Jerusalem for a thousand years. They did not understand what Yeshua meant about dying and being raised because they only saw a limited part of the mission of the Messiah. And they were afraid to ask him what he meant. Why? Well, this was an unpleasant subject. The idea of their beloved rabbi, the Messiah, Dying was too strange, too unpleasant to think much about. And 
They didn't want to ask Yeshua because Yeshua could be scary. Scary Yeshua. He could be very tough. He could express disappointment for someone's lack of understanding, for someone's lack of faith. Better not to ask. Yeshua knew what was about to happen to him, that he would be terribly mistreated by Israel's leaders and then crucified, yet he did not quit. He continued his mission, even though he knew where it was leading him. He continued to honor and obey the will of God, even though it was leading him to a horrible death of crucifixion. That takes tremendous courage. That takes great faith. And that's the kind of faith and courage that God wants each one of us to have. Faith that's willing to live for God in good times and faith that is willing to suffer, even die for God in hard times. And unless I'm very much mistaken, which I rarely am these days, hard times are coming shortly. Rabbi Jerry, any thoughts, comments, suggestions, <laughs> vetoes? <laughs> Not on this. Um, other than one comment to make, which is, I, I find it very interesting. You know, again, you know, instead of seeking more information, we've seen this pattern. Instead of seeking more information, in this case, they're afraid. But what's also interesting is they, you know, Yeshua and all of this, you know, there's the, the dramatic statement about him dying and being resurrected. It also says he's going to be betrayed into the hands of his enemies. None of them decide to ask Yeshua, here, who is it that's going to betray you? Now, later on, we will see, you know, I, I don't know if it's in Mark's house, but obviously in Luke, Peter asks, uh, you know, the Messiah, who will betray him? Uh, but here, they do not seem to ask. Uh, so I just find that kind of interesting. Next section, Rabbi Jerry. All right. So continuing sort of this part of the narrative, after they arrived at Capernaum and so in a house, Yeshua asked his disciples, what were you discussing out on the road? But they didn't answer because they had been arguing about which of them was the greatest. So he sat down and called the 12 disciples over to him and said, whoever wants to be first must take a last place and be the servant of everyone else. Then he put a little child among them. Taking the child in his arms, he said to them, Anyone who welcomes a little child like this on my behalf welcomes me. And anyone who welcomes me welcomes not only me, but also my father who sent me. So instead of seeking more information about what is going to happen to their teacher and the Messiah, we see the disciples, most likely after this teaching was given, were busy arguing with themselves over who is the greatest. Um, Again, the way the sequence seems to indicate, it seems to indicate that Yeshua gave this teaching. And then, you know, it's a, it's a long walk. You know, it's a long road, long and winding road. And Messiah Yeshua uh, probably stepped a little forward, maybe away from them. We're not given all the details. But instead of discussing this important piece of news, they sit there squabbling among themselves yet again on which one of them is the greatest of the 12. Um. 
Last week, we discussed how the disciples were unable to cast out a demon due to a lack of prayer and spiritual arrogance. And I think this gives us further evidence to that claim with what they were arguing about on the road. And this is further proof that they had not learned from their earlier mistakes. You would think after being unable to cast out a demon, probably being mocked by some Torah teachers and being one up by their rabbi, that they might have been humbled a little bit from that situation. But it's good to know that their pride is still intact here in this passage. Yeshua once again asked a question to provoke a response. I kind of talked a little bit about this last week. So in this case, their lack of response to his question of, hey, what were you guys talking about on the road? hopefully out of guilt and shame, is telling. He knew exactly what they had been arguing about on the road and chooses to answer the question of who is the greatest by reframing the question. We see something similar, I think, with the Good Samaritan parable, right? Uh, Who is my neighbor? Yeshua redefines the question as, am I being a good neighbor to somebody else? They ask the question of who is the greatest. Yeshua seems to be redefining the question of what does it mean to be great in the kingdom of God? Those who want to be great leaders must be servants of everyone else. And notice it's not like, okay, so at the top of like an organizational chart, we might have like the CEO in business, right? And then you have, you know, your entry-level worker, right? We'll say if it's a restaurant, the CEO or owner of a business and the dishwasher, okay? So Yeshua isn't saying here the CEO should be like the assistant manager or the manager of the business, middle management. He's saying you should be in the lowest of positions. You should be a servant to everyone else. He says this is the model of true servant leadership. And I think sometimes we take this as, yeah, Yeshua wants us to go down a couple pegs, but there's a limit to how many pegs we should go down. You know, if I'm, if I'm the rabbi of Shema, I should never shovel outside or take out a trash can. I'll let you know that our leadership is willing to take out trash. And I've had to yell at Rabbi Lauren for shoveling out the snow in the morning when I know he's under the weather and tell him I'm doing that for him. So we, we model, we try to model this in our community. Um, so I think it's important to understand the levels going on here. You need to be a servant of everyone else, not just marginally lower, but incredibly lower. And to illustrate what he means, Yeshua brings a child literally into the discussion. I just, I just love that image of like, there's a kid, you know, they're staying at somebody's house. There's probably a child there. You know, he didn't pluck it from the street, but he's, there's a child probably playing. He's like, I'm going to grab this child, put him in the middle of all of us and hold him while I give my teaching. You know, it's a very dramatic image. Now, children, so understanding this image, right? Children can represent many things in life and also many things in scripture. But their meaning here is simple if we look at the context of the disciples' arrogance. A little child is not respected. Children, especially small children, three-year-olds, we'll say here, have no power, very little money, very little social standing, and have very little to offer people in the ways that society values. Despite people wanting to put children into labor, a three-year-old is not going to be very useful in your business. Is it going to be very useful in doing tasks in your family, right, et cetera, et cetera. Compared to someone like a president, a boss, or even an adult, children are considered insignificant, and they're mostly ignored. 
often being told what? To be quiet and stay out of the way. When there's business going on, if you're fixing your car, you don't probably want a three-year-old wandering around in that area. You need to be quiet while I do what I need to do and stay out of my way. Yeshua teaches the disciples and us that we need to welcome those who are disregarded by society, like children. We need to care about their well-being and give them the time and attention they deserve by being made in God's image. Instead of chasing after prestige, which, guess what, that's what the disciples were doing here, we should be seeking out the ones other people ignore. Who are considered insignificant by society today? Perhaps those who are homeless, those who struggle with addiction of all kinds, those who maybe struggle with mental illness, those who are of a lower uh, economic standing, poorer, those who aren't desired or respected, and of course, actual children. We live in a culture that sexualizes, brutalizes, abuses, and ignores children from the womb until adulthood. At all stages of life in our society, children are abused, mistreated, sexualized, discarded. And it's a shame on all levels. Rabbi? Every human being is important, valuable, significant, precious, because every human being is made in the image of God. And that makes every human being very special, very valuable, very precious. And that's how we are to see every human being. The world is constantly measuring, people in the world are constantly measuring themselves against others. We do this like from childhood. Who's greater? Oh, my daddy is bigger so, uh, and stronger. You know, I, I, I'm, I'm greater. We grow up, um, I've got more money. I've got better looks. I am smarter. I've got more physical abilities. So I'm greater. And so we, you know, we look to ourselves and we diminish others. That's how the world works. That is not how the kingdom of God operates. That's not how we are to work. We are to look at every human being, no matter who they are, uh, what gifts, talents, and abilities God has given them or not given them, and see them as valuable and precious. And think about it. Maybe you are more beautiful, more handsome, richer, smarter. <laughs> uh, that's really not even you. I mean, God gave you those gifts, those talents, those abilities, those educational opportunities, those connections, those contacts. It's not even you. It's God who blessed you with your gifts, talents, and abilities. So every human being, from the baby in the womb to the person who is dying of dementia and old age is valuable 
precious. And we are there to help them, to encourage them, to serve them in some way. It's a very different attitude towards human life than the world, uh, the attitude of the world. Just one last comment on that, or, or two. You know, there's an old adage that we can judge and understand a person not by how they treat those they feel are above them or equal to them, but those that they feel are in, they are in a position of authority over or beneath them. Um, it tells you someone's character, um, how they treat a waiter or waitress or you know, uh, a person in the public. Um, you know, my family is in the restaurant business. I did my time in that, in that area and with the public. And people can be very rude to cashiers and waitresses and these sorts of things. And um, particularly people who are part of God's community, there is a, a joke slash truth that uh, the worst crowd, if you're a waiter or waitress, this is true, most, most people, is the worst crowd to deal with is the after church crowd on Sundays. How many here would raise their hand that were a waiter or waitress would say that the after church crowd was terrible to deal with? I got hands in the audience. Why is that? Well, it's two things. It's they don't tip and I mean, or they'll put a track in which, oh, I'm not going to get on this. I'm not going to get on this soapbox here because we'll be here for a while. But they put it, they put a track in instead of a tip. Okay. Put a tip with a track. Okay. Just putting that out there. If you're one of those people. Okay. Um, and secondly, they're very rude and condescending typically. That is not the mark of those who are part of God's community. Messiah Yeshua would not treat someone like that, which means you don't get to treat them like that. So it's about dealing with the people beneath us. And it's also about the other key thing here is being other-centered. Yeshua was constantly thinking about the people around him. He was constantly thinking about his disciples and trying best to teach and instruct them. We need to have that same mindset of being other-centered. And when we go into a situation, not thinking about how we can enrich ourselves, which is what people in the world do, but how can I enrich other people? It's a different mindset. All right. Um, I have another comment or two. This is not just something that is part of the world. It also happens in the church, in Messiah's community. Oh, I'm an elder. Mm. I am a minister. Um, uh, I'm, an, I'm an apostle. <laughs> I, I'm an apostle. That's, yeah, yeah, that's really you know, going for it, the, 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 claim, the claim to be an apostle. So um, I heard a man recently, a, a pastor, say, you know, um, if you're a pastor of a church of 100 people, <laughs> sorry, I know and you're um, you get your 100 people praying for 12 others. So say there's 100 people in Shema, and uh, you're praying, I, I, you know, I get you praying for 12 family members, friends, uh, People strangers. you don't know, yeah. strangers, right? Uh, so the pastor goes on to say, if you are a, a church of 100 and you're the pastor and you get uh, people praying for uh, 10 others, suddenly you have a church of 1,300 because your 100 are praying for 12 each. That's you know 1,200 plus the 100. They're bringing them into the presence of God through prayer. And now God will look on you not as the pastor of a church of 100, 
but as the pastor of a church of 1,300. It was all good up until that point. <laughs> I heard, we, we heard this teaching. So the implication is God looks at the pastor of a church of 1,300. Well, that's big, a church of 1,300. He looks at the, pa- you know, the pastor of a church of 1,300, and he's much more impressed with the pastor of a church of 1,300 than a pastor of a church of 100. No doubt this pastor had a big had a big church. <laughs> but where's it's a it's a great line, but there's no principle in scripture to back this up. But that's not the point. It's an attitude that God looks at people based on numbers. It's Which pride. Think? I'm the pastor of a big church. I'm more important, and God treats me more important than he does a pastor of a smaller church. It's that same kind of pride that Yeshua is warning us against. And it's not just in the world. It is very much in Messiah's community as well. We always need to be, you know, aware, on guard for the sin of pride. Thinking way too highly of ourselves and thinking way too low of everyone else who are made in the image of God. Absolutely. All right, moving on, verse 38. So Yeshua gives them this teaching. John responds. John said to Yeshua, Rabbi, we saw someone using your name to cast out demons, but we told him to stop because he wasn't in our group. Don't stop him, Yeshua said. No one who performs a miracle in my name will soon be able to speak evil of me. Anyone who is not against us is for us. If anyone gives you even a cup of water because you belong to the Messiah, I tell you the truth, that person will surely be rewarded. But if you cause one of these little ones who trust in me to fall into sin, it would be better for you to be thrown into the sea with a large millstone hung around your neck. So we have a verse in here, anyone who is not against us is for us, that gets quoted a lot of times out of context. Let's look at the context, what's Messiah Yeshua saying here. So maybe to hopefully redeem himself for participating in the arguing, John, the beloved disciple, John, Messiah Yeshua's best friend, John, who is filled with great and deep spiritual insights, relates to him this incident. And he clearly expected to be praised for what he says, right? He's like, they just got a thrashing. He's trying to be like, look at this great thing we did, Lord. I know we're failing in other areas, but look, we, we stopped this guy from casting out demons. Aren't you proud of us? He's not. <laughs> it is interesting to know that disciples try to stop this man who was able to cast out a demon when they failed previously. There may be some jealousy as well behind their motives. Here's a man who's having success in casting out demons. He's one, not 12. And they see him doing this and tell him to cut it out. You know, were they really just trying to um, defend their master, their rabbi, or were they jealous that this man was having more spiritual success than they were? You, You can see which way I think about it. Yeshua correctly points out that any exorcisms done in his name will only help them. 
those who are being empowered by the Lord are part of their community, right? You can't just willy-nilly invoke the Lord's name, as we'll see later if you read in Scripture and Acts when someone tries to invoke the Lord's name, right, very famously, uh, without truly believing. But the fact that this man is having success invoking the Lord's name, praying to God, um, shows that he is part of this community. Extending... uh, by the Lord are part of their community, extending further those who are not believers yet, but show compassion and Messiah's followers will also be rewarded. So he looks first at those who are part of the community, but outside this group. And he says, even those who are not part of us yet, who show us compassion, there is a reward for them. With that comes the first of several warnings, as we'll see throughout the rest of this chapter, that no one should cause any believer particularly those who are vulnerable, right? We said these little ones is about vulnerability. Those who are vulnerable, impressionable, to stumble. It would be better for them to tie a giant millstone. Literally in the Greek here, it's like the millstone used for a donkey to mill, a huge stone around their neck and to drown instead. The image is jarring. It's intentional. As believers, we should not be obsessed with creating needless division. Now, it's important to know here, and this sometimes gets abused, that this warning is not about correcting sinful behaviors, bad doctrine, all the things that the apostles will be doing later on in their letters, about kicking out false, unrepentant teachers. That's not what's going on here. This is a warning against engaging in petty nonsense often from a place of envy and jealousy that harms our community. Defending ourselves from the work of Satan in our midst is appropriate and necessary. Needless division, which is a work of Satan, is not. So what are we talking about here? What are some of the petty jealousies today? Perhaps those who obsess against megachurches, not on the basis of a church's doctrine or treatment of people or issues, but just how they, or how they function, if there's issues, like not diving into a specific problem, but just saying, I'm against megachurches. I'm against a church that's big. Jealous because they're larger. Or somebody who is against smaller congregations. Well, if you only have 20 people meeting in your community, why even bother getting together? You should just close up shop and let a bigger church down the road absorb you in that has better programs and a better teacher, et cetera, et cetera. Okay? A different type of jealousy going on there. God can and does work in congregations of all sizes, and that should be acknowledged and celebrated. What are some other issues that might be minor doctrinal differences that cause us to break fellowship? How about the old chestnut of sprinkling versus full immersion baptism, or not being part of the same theological circle. A common one today is the nine marks community, those who are familiar with that. Dispensationalism. If you're not a dispensationalist, I can't have fellowship with you. I need to kick you out. How about when the rapture will occur? Pre versus midterm. Those who have the Bible study, you know, remember Rabbi uh, Glenn was talking about a little bit of that this week. Uh, Different views on hell. We need to be less busy pointing fingers at each other and more busy actually doing the work of God and combating our one real enemy, which is Satan and his demonic forces. You know, from a military kind of point of view, right, 
you know, one of the ways you can defeat an army, a military force, is by getting them not to fight against you, the enemy, but turning them against each other, right? A force that is fighting against itself will not be effective in combat, right? It's the same thing with us in our communities. Petty division destroys communities from within. It's a very effective tool that Satan uses since this time forward and previous to destroy God's people. We need to be aware of it and avoid it. Rabbi? So here's a man who obviously has some faith in Yeshua. I would say he's a relatively young believer, like the young child that Yeshua pointed to and said that that you got to be like a young child. Every person has worth. Everyone's valuable. You look at the person. You nurture that young believer. You encourage him. You don't discourage him. And right after that, they see this young believer casting out a demon, uh, more than one demon, and they told him to stop. Well, I am sure that he was discouraged by these are the Lord's special, you know, inner circle, the, you know, the disciples. They should have encouraged him. They should have, you know, commended him. Instead, they told him to stop because he was not part of their authorized group. They weren't looking at him and encouraging him and supporting him. They were discouraging him who was doing something really wonderful. And Yeshua says, you should not have done that. If he's not against us, he's for us because the world is against Yeshua and against us. That is the default mode of the world. There is a cosmic battle between good and evil, God and Satan. And we're on God's side and the world is against God and the Son of God and the followers of God. So someone who is not against us, that is unusual. That is a good thing. That's positive. That should be encouraged. Yeshua says, if anyone gives you even a cup of water because you belong to me, I tell you the truth, that person will surely be rewarded. So there's God the Father. God the Son is united to God the Father. The Spirit of the Father and the Son is in us. So we are united to the Son who is united to the Father because of the Spirit. And the Father, the Son, and the Spirit and us are all working together. So the way people treat believers is really important. Not only do they have inherent worth because they're made in the image of God, they're connected to God himself and represent God in this world. And the slightest little gesture of love and concern and care for the humblest Yeshua follower is worthy of a reward for that reason. That's not what was happening here. So again, we don't want to discourage a new believer, any believer, for doing, you know, stepping out in faith and trying to serve the Lord. We encourage that person, even if he's not part of our official group. One of the problems in Messiah's community, the church, is we're way too cliquish. 
We only look at our little, our denominations. And anyone who's not part of our group, our denomination, can't be doing much good. That's the kind of attitude that Yeshua is correcting his disciples for. We told him to stop because he wasn't in our group. Well, he was in Messiah's group. He was in God's group. One last just small comment. What's interesting is, you know, as the disciples were arguing over who is the greatest, the assumption was it was one of the 12. You know, part of, I think, this whole thing as well is that, you know, they need to expand their viewpoint of who is great in the kingdom of God and think outside of their little group. And all these examples are about widening your view of people and considering other people who you wouldn't think would be the greatest could potentially have and do have greatness in God's kingdom by being servant leaders. Just one more comment that I find funny. Don't stop him, Yeshua said. No one who performs a miracle in my name will soon be able to speak evil of me. And of course, Yeshua is right. Uh, Doing a miracle in Yeshua's name and speaking evil of him usually takes place over a longer period of time. (laughs) Not a shorter period of time. (laughs) I bring this up because there are real apostates who have been very close to Yeshua, claim to believe in Yeshua, have supposedly done miracles in the name of Yeshua, and then wind up turning against Yeshua. That usually takes time. So I find it funny and, you know, somewhat ironic. No one who performs a miracle in my name will soon be able to speak evil of me. That's true. Speaking evil about Yeshua usually takes a little longer time. But it happens. All right, last section. Radical avoidance of sin and the nature of hell. Sin is bad, especially the sin of causing division in Messiah's community. They'll know we're his disciples by our love for one another, unity in Messiah's community. We're to be radically different from the world in love and unity. The sin of causing division in Messiah's community is really evil, especially the sin of causing a fellow believer to sin, to stumble, to lose faith, to be discouraged and turn away from the Lord. Messiah's community is the most special community on earth. Community comes from the word unity. The world is not united. It does not have unity. It's divided in so many ways, constantly fighting among itself. We are to be different. If we fight with our fellow believers, if we hurt our fellow believers, if we discourage them, if we cause them to stumble and damage their faith, we are sinning. We are doing great damage to Messiah's community and to our witness to the world. The people of the world, and even many believers, don't understand the holiness of God, the purity of our Heavenly Father, the righteousness of the Creator. They don't understand the offensiveness 
of sin. Rebellion against God, God's will, God's laws is very bad. And judgment for rebellion and sin is certain. And it is severe. And the consequences are everlasting. Therefore, Messiah will tell us right here that he wants us to take radical measures to avoid sin, especially the sins of division in Messiah's community and causing other believers to stumble and turn away from God. Verse 43, if your hand causes you to sin, cut it off. It's better to enter eternal life with only one hand than to go into the unquenchable fires of hell with two hands. If your foot causes you to sin, cut it off. It's better to enter eternal life with only one foot than to be thrown into hell with two feet. And if your eye causes you to sin, gouge it out. It's better to enter the kingdom of God with only one eye than to have two eyes and be thrown into hell where the maggots never die and the fire never goes out. Talk about scary Yeshua. This is scary Yeshua pretty much at the max. He's the son of God and he is speaking the truth. Now, Yeshua is not instructing us to literally cut off our hand, cut off our foot, or gouge out our eye. He's using hyperbole, exaggeration, designed to express the importance of the need to take radical action to avoid sin. I was told about a mentally ill man who was a believer who took these words literally and tried to gouge out his eyes. He did not uh, actually gouge out his eyes, but he damaged, he got close. He got damaged the area close to his eyes. Not good. So this is hyperbole, exaggeration, designed to express the importance of the need to take radical action to avoid sin. Yeshua is warning us with a very scary warning not to play with sin, not to toy with sin, not to tolerate sin in our lives. Tolerating sin makes it feel less bad. We get used to it. We get comfortable with it. Tolerating sin anesthetizes us to the awfulness of sin. And so we continue to sin. But sin does not just stay neutral. Sin grows in us. It's like yeast that infects a loaf of bread. It grows and grows. It spreads more and more. That's the nature of sin. It's aggressive. 
like an aggressive kind of cancer. It grows in us and controls us more and more and ruins us more and more and weakens us more and more. We don't want to tolerate sin, play with sin, toy with sin, accommodate sin. We don't want to get right up to the edge of the sin barrier. Well, I'm not quite going over the sin barrier. I'm just getting right up to the edge. And that's okay. I'm safe because I haven't gone over the edge. Only to find out that sin reaches over the edge, grabs you, and takes you over the edge with it. That is the nature of sin. Sin is crouching at the door like a wild animal ready to break through and kill you. The consequences of sin. The consequences of continuing your rebellion against God. Well, Yeshua says it's Gehenna, hell, the lake of fire, also known as the second death. Sometimes in the movies, after you think the bad guys are killed, you think the bad guys are dead, somehow they come back from death. They've been killed, but they're not really dead. They come back. Uh, in the latest Star Wars movie, Emperor Palpatine somehow comes back at the end. Don't know how, but he's there. He's the bad guy behind all the evil that's been going on. In the Narnia Chronicles, Jadis, the white witch who was killed, somehow shows up again. The bad guys have a way of coming back. That's not the way it will be when God sends the bad guys, and I guess the bad gals, to hell. Now, I don't believe, like most Christians do, that hell is a place of eternal torment. I believe that the Bible teaches that it's a place of torment, but after sufficient punishment, most sinners will be destroyed in hell. They will perish. They will die the second death, except for the very worst sinners, like the Antichrist, the false prophet. They're mentioned in Revelation as being in hell forever and ever. I believe this is what Yeshua meant when he said that the wicked will be thrown into hell where the maggots never die and the fire never goes out. This is where all this is leading to, trying to explain that idea. Yeshua is quoting from Isaiah 66. Isaiah 66, the last chapter of Isaiah, tells us that after the Lord returns to earth, and defeats all his adversaries, he will rule in Jerusalem for a thousand years. The millennial kingdom. Millennium means a thousand years. This is what the Lord promises in Isaiah 66. All humanity will come to worship me from week to week and from month to month. And as they go out, they will see the dead bodies of those who have rebelled against me. For the worms that devour them will never die, 
and the fire that burns them will never go out. All who pass by will view them with utter horror. All right, so that's what Yeshua is referencing. Worms, in this case maggots, can die. Maggots can die. Worms can die before they finish eating the corpse and not consume the corpse that they started eating. Maggots that never die completely consume the corpses, the bodies of the dead. The maggots that devour the corpses of the Lord's enemies in Isaiah 66 are assisted by an unquenchable fire, a fire that never goes out. Now, fire may be quenched before it has entirely burned up and consumed what it's burning. Fire that never goes out means fire that completely consumes what it's burning. Maggots that eat corpses that haven't been buried, and fire, burning bodies that haven't been buried, also speak of shame and contempt, a kind of horror. Not eternal torment. However, admittedly, I am in the minority about this. Most Christians believe the nature of hell is one of eternal torment, not more like second death. And I plan on giving a full, complete teaching on this next week. So you are in for a treat. (laughs) Not only will there be eternal fire in hell, well, fire in hell. Yeah, eternal fire in hell. There will also be fire in the present, verse 49. For everyone will be tested with fire. This is talking about the present. Now, this, again, is not literal fire. It means that God will put us into fiery situations, difficult situations, so that we can show that we love him by being faithful to him, by being obedient to him. What are some of the fiery, difficult situations he will put us in? He will bring fellow Yeshua followers, fellow believers into our lives who we find very annoying, who we find very difficult, who we don't like, who we may strongly disagree with on some secondary issues like this one, the nature of hell. Will we treat them with love and grace and compassion, and kindness, and understanding, because they are made in the image of God and are valuable and precious, and because they are united to the Son who is united to the Father and are part of Messiah's ongoing mission? Will we encourage them and love them even though we find them annoying, difficult, unpleasant? That's one of those fires that we will be tested with? Or will we 
alienate our fellow believers and drive them away from us and possibly drive them away from God? Will we cause them to stumble and fall into sin? Verse 50, salt is good for seasoning, but if it loses its flavor, how do you make it salty again? You must have the qualities of salt among yourselves and live in peace with each other. Same theme, same message. Salt is very beneficial. We need it to live. It preserves food. It cleanses. If you have a cut or a wound and you dip it into salt, salt water, it cleanses the wound. It makes food taste better. Yeshua wants his followers to be like salt, something that gives good taste, something that preserves, something that cleanses, something that's pure. He does not want us to be proud, self-seeking, self-advancing, dishonoring others, discouraging their faith, causing them to stumble. Instead, he wants us to be humble, gracious, loving, patient, serving the ones around us, especially the young believers, the weak believers, the less gifted, the difficult, the annoying. That will enable us to be at peace with one another. Rabbi Jerry. There's a couple quick remarks. Um, you know, hell is real. <laughs> Uh, it is a real place, and as this passage makes very clear, it is not a place you want to go. Um, you know, obviously there is more on hell in God's word than just these couple of verses here or just the Gospel of Mark. If that's an area that you want to study more, and I encourage you to have a full knowledge of the nature of hell, I highly recommend a book, uh, Counterpoints, Four Views on Hell, which goes through Rabbi Lauren's view, a more traditional view, as well as universalism from different points of view and, and responses to them to have a better full understanding of this issue. But again, going back to this passage and what it teaches about hell, again, we don't want to just not, we don't want to see this passage alone and not in its context. You know, this is again at the backdrop of the squabbling of the disciples, they're shutting down other people. And we have this model that we are to be like salt here. So this means we have to model the true characteristics of being a follower of Messiah. And we need to seek to have peace, it says here, in our communities. Those who obsess over status and try to shut down out of jealousy God's work in other communities or within their own community, they need to check themselves. They need to understand that they're not in a position to tell God what to do. And we need to recognize our humility in this process. You know, part of the issue of the disciples wasn't just about them arguing about this, but there was a real issue of pride. And if the disciples of Messiah Yeshua who experience closeness, fellowship, one-on-one -on -one direct teaching from him struggled with this issue, how much more will and can we. So we really need to be guarding ourselves in our communities about these things. Thank you, Rabbi Jerry.